0: 2 Corinthians chapter 3, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask, Lord, as we continue to worship, the Father, that you would instruct us, challenge us, encourage our hearts through your word. We ask, Lord, that you give to us a very strong desire to understand your word, to want to be shaped by your word, to want to be changed by your word. We ask, Lord, that your word would always be very precious to us. Not, Father, in the sense that we have uh, just an affection for your word, though that's good. but, Lord, that we'd have a very strong commitment to what it says. And so, Father, we are grateful that you've given us your word, that you preserved it for us. And so, Father, now we ask for your blessing on the reading of your word and on the explanation of your word. As we seek to glorify you, we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites... For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now, as we continue on with 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3, let me kind of explain to you what I think is a takeaway as to what Paul is doing here. Remember that the context is, or the setting, is that there are there's a group of individuals that have kind of come into the church at Corinth. Paul's not there. And they are seeking to influence the people in a way that they will... Become more loyal to them instead of Paul. They see Paul as a rival. Uh, they want what Paul has. They want to have authority uh, over the, the people in Corinth. They want to have the influence over the people in Corinth. And so basically they've shown up and they and they are trying to diminish who Paul is and say, notice who we are. Notice our letters of recommendation. Notice the accolades that we have. So we're better than Paul. Now, Paul does want to defend himself. He does slightly, but his whole approach is very different. What he's basically saying is, yeah, okay, notice the message I brought. He's just almost dismissing what they're saying. Notice the message that I've brought to you. Notice the greatness of the message. The, the, the greatness of this message has great glory. And the reason why he's doing that is he always wants to emphasize the gospel. He wants to emphasize who Christ is. He also understands that some of these false teachers, and that's because it seems that some of these are kind of caught up with either the Gnostics. I don't know if they're actually a group of Gnostics themselves. But there's this idea with some of them that A, they have special revelation from God, and then there's also a mix in that group, a group of Judaizers, where the idea is, is that they don't like Paul because Paul doesn't seem to be pushing enough Judaism and the law of Moses. And so they're coming along, and they, they want to you know, push again maybe some of the rituals from the Old Testament. They want, they want to uh, press that on the Gentile believers and so the idea is, is look, look how we are adhering to what we know to be true, that type of thing. And as a result, then, you know, they can take away credit from Paul. So that's kind of what's going on here. So Paul is focusing in on the greatness of the message and comparing the message, the main message he brings, most likely with the main message that they bring, without getting caught up in who they are and their credentials and supposedly what his credentials are. He's not ashamed of his credentials, but he doesn't want to make it about him. He really does want to make it about Christ and about the message, because his concern is always for them to grow and to mature in their faith and their thinking and in their understanding. So he's going to really underscore the superiority of the new covenant to the oath. So he makes reference to things in what we've read and he makes reference because there's this assumption on his part, and it's a correct assumption, that they know what he's talking about. That, that when he kind of makes a reference to a couple of Old Testament passages or stories or events, they're, they're there. They, they, they know the context. They, they already know the stories. Sometimes for us, we're not quite, well, I mean, you know, we get bits and pieces, and we're not quite sure how, how to put it all together. So turn, if we were just for a moment, to Exodus 34. This is what Paul is referring to. This is the event that he's talking about as he again is seeking to show really the superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. So Exodus 34, beginning in verse 29, it says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, uh, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses (laughs) would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So there is this event that takes place, and so Moses' face, just so you know, is literally shining. Now, I don't know if that meant it glowed in the dark. I don't know what extent that is, but it was clearly they knew that his face was significantly different. And the, the correlation was it's because he had been with God. It would be kind of like if one of some of us here just suddenly went down to Bermuda and spent three weeks. When you came back, it would be obvious on your face that you were somewhere sunny and warm. It would just be immediate. We would even say your face was shining. Uh, and in some cases, it might be. might be glowing because... <laughs> Of how red it is but the idea is is there is this event that was taking place so again his point here then is to show that the old covenant because it came from God was glorious so he's not diminishing that he's not saying that what was going on in the Old Testament what was going on with Moses that it was that it was not glorious or that it's just you just do away with it you don't have to think about it anymore he wasn't doing that and that's what he was accused of in some cases But remember that the law of Moses was basically its fulfillment was based on human initiative. The idea is they were to live in obedience to what God said. That's what man was supposed to do. And so it, in essence, had to be transitory and fading because man can't do that. When you read through Romans, it makes it very clear that man is unable to keep the law of God on his own. In fact, the law, as you know, if you kind of go through Romans, it explains to us that The law of Moses points out our sin. In fact, it increases our sin. It gives us greater knowledge of sin. But it couldn't save us from sin. It was unable to do that. And so it needed to be replaced by the new covenant and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now looking again at verse 7, this is how he phrases it. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. So again, when you look at this, when Moses comes down from the mountain, he has the two tablets of stone. We know that on those two tablets was written the law of God, that God had given to Moses. So he carried those down. It was carved in stone. Here it is called by Paul the ministry of death. It can sound like it's a very derogatory term. It isn't. Uh, he's talking about it really theologically, wanting them to understand what was going on, but he's not diminishing it and saying that it's bad in any sense because he says it came with glory. And it was, and it came with such glory that the one who carried it, the one who had received it, the one who was speaking to God, his face was shining because of the glory of God. So again, he's showing that and making sure they, they recognize that. Now, some... In, there's a few small groups of individuals or small sections of Christianity where they try to teach that the New Covenant has more glory than the Torah. Now, when it comes to the word Torah, um, in your bulletins, there's a, a little article on what is meant by Torah. And you can kind of look at that uh, so you can get a, a good understanding. Because sometimes it means just the law. Sometimes it's referring to uh, the Old Testament. Uh, in a sense, so it's, it's used kind of interchangeably. I do believe here he's primarily speaking of the law, the law itself, the, the Old covenant, um, the law of Moses. The Greek word for Torah or law is Nomos. Um, it's not used here in Second Corinthians, uh, but there are individuals who try to make this statement that somehow the New covenant is more glorious than the law. And the idea behind that is is then, We can almost ignore the law or just kind of do away with the law. And so we have to be be careful of the language we use when we talk about that because we never want to give the impression that the Old Testament is of no use because that's untrue. It's of great use. We, We need to know that. Are we under the law of Moses? No, we're not under the law of Moses. As believers, we are under the law of Christ. A great deal of the law of Moses is repeated in the law of Christ. there is definitely definitely an overlap, there's a connection there. Again, remember that what we have from Genesis to Revelation is singularly the revelation of God to us. It is this complete revelation that God has given to us. So just because one part is in the beginning uh, and in a sense is over with, doesn't mean it's of no value, it's of great value. And so, We need to make sure that we recognize that and be careful of those who want to diminish it. it. There are those who diminish it to such a degree. that There are some groups, for example, uh, and I don't know if they have an official name, but but I've run into a few people who are so uh, into that kind of thing, they would say that the only part of the Bible that Christians need are the things written by Paul. So you basically get rid of the Old Testament and even get rid of the Gospels. Now, they won't say throw it away, but the emphasis is always only on Paul and what Paul It's the only part that's important. You know, there's that old joke used to be that uh, some individuals said that I believe the whole Bible, but I especially believe the parts that are in red. Uh, and of course, you know, that was an idea someone had to, I guess, help individuals to visually immediately identify when Christ was speaking. It's kind of inconsistent because you only find it in the, in, in the Gospels and Christ spoke in other places. But the idea is is that it's, that's just something that someone did to help bring our attention to what's being said it doesn't make it more important uh, and there are those who kind of do that maybe even to, a, to an exaggerated degree when it comes to the bible so paul here is talking about the text that was engraved on the stone tablets they worked death they worked to declare people guilty um, it came with temporary brightness it was fading away Uh, And it is with that written text that he's contrasting the new covenant with, which again is accompanied by the Spirit of God, who, as we know, writes on human hearts, who gives life, who works to declare people innocent or declares people justified, who last. So the point that Paul is making uh, is a cow-chalmer argument. So there's another article in the bulletin about that. There's different kinds of, of arguments used in the Bible, styled by Um, what they would do in Jewish culture, and this is one of them. And so you can do a quick read of that to kind of understand what Paul is doing. Uh, The main idea there is you you take a strong argument or strong illustration, something that's very strong and very obvious, and so you say, well, you see, this is happening. Then you you go from that to a lesser point and say, therefore, we know that this is going to happen. One of the arguments used in the little article that I gave you is uh, there's, an, uh, there's a, a statement about individuals disobeying Christ when, when he's present or disobeying the, the word of God when Paul is present. So if they do that then, then it's natural to assume they're going to do that when he's dead and gone. And so that's kind of the idea that's going on here. So we need sh- we to ask ourselves the question, how is it then that the written text of the law is going to bring about the ministry of death? Paul, again... Caused the, the Torah holy, calls the law holy in Romans chapter seven. Here he says that it kills. So he doesn't answer the question in his letters to the Corinthians, but I think he assumes that they already are knowledgeable on the subject. And so sometimes when you read through the letters of Paul, you kind of come across things where he's assuming people know certain things, and if we don't, we need to go make sure, make sure we understand that so we have a, a better context of what's going on and what is the discussion. And the point that he's trying to make. Paul does explain in other places that the law can, is said to bring death. There's four reasons for that. And we don't have time to go through these passages. But the main one would be Romans 5, 12-21. I would encourage you to read that. But basically the law then prescribes death as the penalty for sin. And there's several places in the Bible that does that. And, we all, and most of us, we understand that. You know, we, we grasp that when we come and place our faith in Christ that we are already condemned because of our sin. It is our sin that we're going to be punished for. We need to be saved from our sin. It is our sin that Christ suffered and died for. Why? Because sin carries with it the penalty of death. That's what we all deserve. God showed us mercy by forgiving us of our sin and punishing Christ in our stead. And that's why we emphasize that Christ then not only suffered for us, we would always say that he suffered and what? He died. He died for us. He died in our place. So the law then is what helps us to understand that. It brings with it the penalty. Here's the law. Here's the penalty. All men are condemned because of that. When you read in Galatians chapter 3, as it begins to talk about transgression, the main thing is, is that uh, the, uh, it declared the whole world a prisoner of sin. It helps us to see the extent of this problem or this difficulty. The whole world is a prisoner of sin. That's why it's not just the individual who is prone to sin or has a natural tendency to sin. The whole world is that way. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's a culture or if it's a family or if it's an individual or it's a government. We, are, we, are, we tend to move in that direction. And so we are trapped by that. We are under the dominion of sin. So the idea is is that we need to recognize that and give up our attempts to please God by our own works. And when we do so, the way is prepared for us to receive the promise of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So again... The law is the ministry of death. If you try to keep the law to please God, it's only going to end up in your death. You'll be eternally separated from God. You will never be able to please God. You will never be able to obey God, in a sense, enough, because the standard is not just that you did a pretty good job. The standard is not that you obey God nine out of ten years. The standard is that you have no sin, that you are perfect, that you have lived in perfect obedience, both inward and outwardly. And not not just from the moment the moment you learn it, it's supposed to be you've always been that way. Because the moment there's any sin in your life, it's messed up. You're now condemned. Because all sin deserves death. The separation from God. We're separated from Him. And that's what the Bible makes clear. The idea is to paint a picture of one of hopelessness. That is the idea. Apart from Christ, it's hopeless. There is no forgiveness. There is no heaven. It's hopeless. There is no other way. It doesn't matter how hard you try. And there are those who truly believe, or at least maybe they want to believe, that in the end, they are actually better than they are. In the end, they believe, or they're hoping, as they might say, that their good will outweigh their bad. And we can just say, no, it won't. It won't, it can't. It's an impossibility. It's already been declared to be that way. And any time spent thinking about that makes that obviously clear. So the law then, even though the law is good, the law brings about death, makes death apparent, makes death obvious, reveals to us that we're under under that curse. The law also provides an opportunity for sinful people to pervert God's holy law into legalism. We, we, saw, we see often in the life of Christ that the Jews had done that. When I say the Jews, I mean primarily the Jewish leadership. That's what they were teaching the people, that they could please God by the keeping of the law, and they were the experts at that. They loved the glory and the accolades that came from, I guess you would say, the common man, as to how great they were, as to how righteous they were, how holy they were. They, they actually added to the law of God And we've talked about whether you call it the tradition of the elders or fence laws or the Mishnah. All of those refer to the same thing. The idea there is that uh, they they were trying to add to the law to make sure we were keeping it in every way. And of course it just put more chains around the neck of of people and they were unable to keep the traditions, much less keep the law. And so again, all men are guilty. (laughs) But this leads to legalism, and we still fight that ourselves sometimes. Within Christianity, there are those, even those who come to know Christ sometimes slip into this idea that we are able to please God on our own. We're able to please God because of all the good that we do. The good that we do is the result of what God has done for us, for the good he's doing in us. We're not doing good because we're seeking to to gain things from God. We are doing good in response to what God has done for us. It's the natural thing for us to do. I I do good because God has saved me, not so that God will save me. I go to church because God has saved me, not because I'm hoping it will save me or add to the the list that I want to keep so that I can say, present my list to someone at the gate and say, you should let me into heaven because that's not going to happen. And so we need to be careful of legalism, both as believers and of course, in the non-believing world. And remember, there are many, many people who in some way, shape, or form believe that. That's why it's very important, I think, that when you are having any kind of discussion, no matter where you are, when you have a friend or someone that you know utters a sentence that makes reference to any kind of works salvation, you need to say something so they know you don't agree or that it's wrong. There's, it shouldn't be uncomfortable. Somehow they brought it up, so you're going to finish it for them. You don't have to be mean about it, but we need to be firm and clear about that. Because sometimes people will say things in passing. You know, we're just kind of having a maybe a, a casual conversation, and so we'll say, you know, let's say you're talking about someone. It's unfortunate someone so died, and maybe someone you both know, we didn't know well, and and, um, and throughout the course of the conversation, they just say, well. You know, I, I know we're all gonna. I know we're all gonna die one day. I just certainly hope my, my good deeds outweigh my bad. And we sometimes. Yeah, I know what you mean. No, do not do that. Don't do that. I know it might make it sound awkward. Maybe it is. It's okay to be awkward. Just say, ah, you know, you do know that's not true. You can just you can just say, you do know that's not true. Or you don't. I mean, you don't really think that, do you? Just kind of challenge them. You don't. Now, if they don't want to go on with the conversation, that's okay, but you want to challenge it. We have the truth, and we have to be careful that we don't sometimes, in a casual way, end up condoning something that will basically allow someone to remain condemned without ever being challenged in what they're saying. They may only be saying it in in, in passing, and they may not even be thinking about it, and so, what we're trying to do is help them to stop and think about it, even if it's only for a few minutes. Maybe it'll come up later. Maybe it won't. Just ask God to use that. But we've got to be careful because it's very, it tends to be the polite way to do things. You know, when we get in groups and conversations and someone says something, the polite thing to do in the South, I guess, I'm sure it's not, it's not the only place, is not to, you know, don't make waves. You know, and if you have a personality that tends to do that, you might have a spouse who's like, don't say it. You need to say it. You need to, in your mind, say it anyway. Or it's all right. But it's important. Remember, their soul is at stake. That, that's what's going on here. Their soul is at stake. They're believing the wrong thing. Put, they put their hope in the wrong thing. They're they're not just taking a a little detour and they're going to get back on the right road and get to heaven. That's not what's going to happen. Remember what Jesus said. There is only one way. We need to realize that's, that's literal. There's only one way. It's through Christ. And it's definitely not by works. No one is saved that way. Also, the weakness of the law, which we've said already a few ways, is the law does not have in and of itself the ability to give life or to give power to obey. And that's the only thing that can make people righteous. So it's important to understand, which which most of us probably already know, that it is the Spirit of God that gives life to the law. It is the Spirit of God that gives life to the Torah. Um, More precisely, it is when we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God that is given by Jesus, who is the Messiah, that the law becomes for them a tree of life and not a ministry of death. Now, all these things are clarified, really, by Romans 8. So turn to Romans 8. That's pretty much where we're going to be for most of the rest of the morning. Romans 8. It is the best commentary on this. As we work our way through it, I'm going to be reading it out of... It's called the Complete Jewish Bible. It's a translation. Um, And you'll see why I'm reading it as we work our way through this. But Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. We're going to go through it, in a sense, rather quickly. Um because we're just making comment. It's a commentary on what Paul is saying here in, 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 3, but if we're unfamiliar with what he's talking about, this will kind of help us to kind of bring it into focus. So, verse 1 of Romans 8, which is a verse that many believers are familiar with, says, Therefore, there is no longer any condemnation awaiting those who are in union with the Messiah, Yeshua, So Yeshua is the Jewish way to to speak of Jesus. So there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you are a believer, you are not condemned by any of your sins. And you're not going to be condemned by any of the sins you're going to commit in the future. We're not condemned. The penalty was paid in full by Christ. And so when we're feeling guilty, which sometimes is a good thing, and we confess our sins, which is a very good thing, sometimes if that sense of condemnation or guilt lingers longer than maybe it should, We need to be reminded theologically of the truth of what God has said, and you are not condemned. So there is, you know, sometimes individual, we've talked before about how there are maybe certain, what we call big sins that may be looming over someone's head or heart, and and they're thinking somehow that God either can't forgive them or they're not really feeling forgiven. And, And so that can kind of mislead them. That could take their joy away. It can even damage them in a sense spiritually. It can stunt their growth. As a believer, we go back to the Word of God. He assures us. He assures us. So in your past, you may have, you know, there are those who have killed individuals. Um, Most of those individuals, well, I shouldn't say most of them are in prison because they're not. But the idea is is that uh, if if that is, is the case, when you confess your sins and place your trust in Christ, you are forgiven. Remember, the world hates that because they say you don't deserve it of course that's the truth we know that we don't deserve that it's god's grace you may have done something maybe abortion it may maybe there's maybe in your past you were married and you were the one who got rid of your spouse because of whatever you were doing can you be forgiven <laughs> absolutely do we face the consequences for the past oh yeah we do no there are those who've committed murder they're in prison. There are those who committed abortion and, and who have had an abortion done, and, and there's a, a heaviness in their heart that just may not ever going to go away. It, it's different than being condemned. There may be some struggles there emotionally. And, th- and that doesn't mean that you're not forgiven. It doesn't mean that. Right? But we are. There may be something else that you, you know, some someone you've betrayed in, in a in just an unexplainable way. And you're carrying that with you. Remember, you're free from that. There may be some things you need to do according to the Word of God. Maybe to try to—I uh, don't want to say make up, but to make right, if you can. There are sometimes we're in situations that we can't. But we are not condemned. That is not—you know—God is not holding that over over our heads at all. He goes on. Again, he's now he says, verse two says why. In other words, there's no longer any condemnation awaiting those who are in union with Christ. Why? Because the Torah of the Spirit, the law of the Spirit, which produces this life in union with Messiah Yeshua, has set me free from the law of sin and death. So I have not kept the law of Moses. I have violated it. I am free from the penalty because of what Christ has done. Our salvation results in this union. Remember, the Spirit of God comes and lives within us. It gives us spiritual life. And because he lives within us, I am one with Christ. And because of that, I'm free from the penalty of the law of sin. It no longer has dominion over me. I'm free from that. Verse 3, for what the Torah or what the law could not do by itself, because it lacked the power to make the old nature cooperate, God did by sending his own son as a human being with a nature like our own sinful one, but without sin. So what is verse three saying? Very simple. The law by itself could not make the old man or could not make the unbeliever obey the word of God. It can't make you do it. We're spiritually dead. So God then sent Christ as a human being, 100% human being. He had a nature just like ours, but he did not sin. He was without sin. He did that on our behalf. God did this in order to deal with sin. And in so doing, he executed the punishment against sin in human nature. Because that's the substitutionary death of Christ. Verse 4. So that the just requirement of the law or the Torah might be fulfilled in us who do not run our lives according to what our own nature wants, but according to what the Spirit wants. So the just requirement of the law was that you sin, you die. You break the law of God, you die. That's the requirement of the law that was met in Christ. It is fulfilled in us because of our union with Christ. Who? Those of us who seek to live our lives according to what the Spirit of God wants. Right? I'm no longer the individual who just lives my life according to what I want or the old nature. I live my life according to what the Spirit wants. That's how we are as believers. We are motivated now in a different way, by a different spirit, the spirit of God, not the spirit of man. Verse 5, for those who identify with their own nature, set their minds on the things of the old nature. But those who identify with the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. Again, just the contrast between before and after, between the believer and the non-believer. It it includes the entire person, the heart, mind, and soul of the individual. It's the intellect, it's the will, it's our emotions or our affections maybe is a better term to use. I set my mind on the things of God. As we know, when you read through the Bible, there's a, there's a great emphasis on the mind. And when I say that, it's not, we're not separating the mind from emotions and all of those things, but there is this idea that I believe is presented in Scripture that we need this information. We, God gives us the information we need so we know what to think and how to think. He's not brainwashing us, but he's giving us the truth. And he tells us then that we need to set our mind, my mindset, my attitude, I need to set my mind on the things of God. That needs to be a priority in my life, period. Remember that when we set our mind on the things of God, making that a priority, that doesn't mean that you are somehow only thinking what some people call just godly things, and you never think of anything else besides the Bible, it's not, it's not something that puts us in a prison. What it does it enables me to see all of life through the paradigm of the Word of God. People become more precious because all men are created in the image of God. It helps me to recognize the importance of patience because I'm viewing it through the paradigm of the Word of God, through the paradigm of the gospel, what God has done. My view of suffering, my own as well as others, takes on a specific flavor because of the information that's given to me by the word of God. He gives me the truth about what suffering is and where suffering comes from and how to deal with suffering. And that suffering will be in my life and the lives of others. Verse six says, having one's mind controlled by the old nature is death. Having one's mind controlled by the spirit is life and shalom or life and peace. Having your mind controlled doesn't mean that you are a robot. The idea is is that I am submitting myself to the Word of God. I'm submitting myself to the Spirit of God. I want my life to be guided, to be informed by what the Word of God says. That's what I want to have happen. And when I allow that to happen, then I'm going to experience peace. I'm going to experience this life that God wants me to have. If I don't, if I give in to the old nature, if I give in to the sin nature... Then there's misery and pain and suffering. Now again, there may be misery and pain and suffering for the believer, but it's always different. Because we always have hope. A very, a very real hope in Christ. We know that whatever we're going through that's negative is temporary. We know that. We know it's all going to end. We know that for a fact. Because of that, we have strength. We have the ability to endure. And we have the comfort that God gives us even now. As well as the promise of his ongoing presence. Verse 7, for the mind controlled by the old nature is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's Torah or God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So again, the idea of submission is here. When you, when you submit to the old nature, that just so you know, you, that's what you are doing. You are allowing your mind to be controlled by your passions. You're allowing your mind to be controlled by your lust. You are, you are the one who's, so there's this connection there. You know, everything is kind of intertwined. You are very much a part of what's happening. That's why what we think about, what we intake, what we read is so important. What we dwell on, what we daydream about is so important. So when we set our mind on these things, whether it's our, our arrogance, our pride, how great we think we are, what other people think about us, whatever, whatever you want to do to fill in the blank, so to speak, that thing controls you. There is no one who is free from that. That, that doesn't exist. We always are going to submit to something, to some philosophy, some ideology. And for the believer, we submit to the Spirit of God. And when we submit to the Spirit of God, then we're not hostile towards the things of God. Nonbelievers hostile towards the things of God. Verse 8, thus those who identify with their own nature cannot please God. So remember that when you and I, before we became believers, no matter how often you gave the charity, you went to church, read your Bible, do whatever, you never at any point in your life ever did anything that pleased God, because everything you did was out of rebellion to God, everything. It colored everything. So it's a credible statement. So when you became a Christian, the very first time you gathered with believers to worship God, that was the first time you ever worshiped God, because you're in submission to what he says. You are Worshiping the one you have acknowledged truly is God. Verse 9, but you, you do not identify with your own nature, but with the Spirit, provided the Spirit of God is living inside you. For anyone who does not have the Spirit of the Messiah doesn't belong to him. There he makes it clear that if you don't identify really as a believer, if if you don't identify with the Spirit of God, with God as a Christian, if you don't do that, then he basically says you don't have the Spirit. You don't have it. It's not there. It's not there. Which means you don't belong to Christ. Verse 10, however, if the Messiah is in you, or if Christ is in you, then on the one hand, the body is dead because of sin. But on the other hand, the spirit is giving life because God considers you righteous. So my body is, in a sense, dead to sin. The way that it's supposed to be is these the various lusts and passions, I consider myself dead to those things. That They still exist, but I don't submit to them. I don't allow them to guide me, for I am alive to God. And I'm alive to God not because of my strength, not because of my obedience, but because of the Spirit of God that lives in me. And as a result of that, God considers me righteous. He's not considering me righteous because I am denying the lust of my life, He is considered me righteous because of my unity with Christ, because of what Christ has done. Verse 11, and if the spirit of the one who raised Yeshua from the dead is living in you, then the one who raised Messiah Yeshua from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit living in you. When you and I grasp that, this is that glorious message that Paul is focusing on. He says, this is the message. You see, when these guys come along and they're trying to gain my authority, they want the authority over you and whatever else is going on, all this manipulation. What I want you to remember is the glorious message of Christ that I brought to you, the life that is in Christ, the forgiveness of sin, being free from the bondage of sin. That's what I want you to grasp, how great this is. Remember that if what God gave through Moses was glorious, then it's obvious that this which gives life is even more glorious. And it's not that the other is done away with, it's actually a fulfillment of that. Those things kind of work together like this. The new covenant that he mentions back in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is what Jeremiah spoke of in Jeremiah chapter 31. The distinction that Paul is drawing here is precisely that as precisely the same with the Jeremiah makes when he says that the new covenant will be not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them out of Egypt, but I'll put my Torah, I'll put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. So again, Paul is not saying that the new covenant in a sense is more glorious than the Torah because the Torah is now excluded. He's not saying that because the distinction he's making is between the letter and the spirit and not the Torah and the spirit. Paul claims it as an emissary of Jesus Christ or the Messiah. His ministry is more glorious than that of Moses. He's not saying he's better than Moses. He's just saying that his ministry is more glorious than Moses because what? It's a better message. It's a message of life. Not only that, it is more glorious in that in every moment of Moses' great glory, his face shone so brightly as he descended Mount Sinai that after seeing God's glory, he put a veil on his face. We'll talk about that more next week, because there's, you know, there's a Jewish tradition uh, that his face was shining for the rest of his life. There's others who say that the, that the glory was fading away, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Not that it's all that important, but it, it will be to a degree. But the idea is, is that he wants to both emphasize the greatness of what was given in the Old Testament, and the greatness, if, if the ministry of death is great, then clearly the ministry of life is great. That's really what he's getting down to. And these individuals are trying to make this distinction and kind of put Paul down. They don't know what they're doing. And they don't know what they're talking about. And they're, and they're going in the wrong direction. What we need to recognize then this year as believers is the gloriousness of the message It is never about you and I being great in the eyes of people. It is never about you and I being able to to help a large number of people in really a a great way. Because it's not really about us. Yes, we want to do that. And yes, it may thrill our hearts when someone thanks us for helping them. But really where where the glory goes, where the finger points to, is the greatness of the message itself. Because that's the message that saves. That's the message that brings life, that gives life. And so we need to make sure that we don't forget that. See, when we focus on ourselves, it's easier for us to get into this contest with others. You might end up feeling insecure and therefore become more quiet. You, or you might go the other way and begin to think that you know more than you do. You become arrogant because you know more than other people. And if you think about it, compared to the non-believer, we do more than they. We do know more than they do. They might know more about physics, but I know more than what they do. I know more than what they do, because I know who God is. I know all about God, in that sense. So I know more. But it's not because I'm brilliant. It's because of God's grace. And I want to share that with them. So That's why it's important for us to remember the greatness of the message. So whether whether we think we are shy or not is, is of no importance. God desires to use us in the lives of others. In fact, keep this in mind, whether you're 68, or maybe you might only be 10 years old, God seeks to use you to help others to know who Christ is. He wants us to be able to share with them just that even the little bit we know about the greatness of God, share that with others, because the message is glorious. Isn't it glorious to say that Jesus loves me? Isn't it glorious to say that I've been forgiven of my sin and that God can forgive you of your sin? It's glorious to be able to do that. It points to the goodness of God. To be able to tell others that God has answered prayers for us. Why would God do that? Oh, it's because of Christ. It's not because of me. It's because of Christ. And the person probably doesn't understand what he means. It's because of Christ. I'm glad you asked. Sometimes you have to ask for him. You know, say, well, and why would God answer my prayer? And then you go ahead and tell them. that's what paul's doing so i think in one sense we see the incredible glorious humility of paul to where these guys are spending all their time talking about themselves and their letters of recommendation and how good they are paul says look at how great this message is and that's the message i brought to you and that's what gives him credibility let's pray father in heaven we thank you again for your grace and kindness and love and for the message of Christ. Well, I pray that you would help everyone here who's a believer to understand that they probably know a whole lot more than they think they do, and that the message that we hold within us really is glorious in every way. I ask, Lord, that you would give to us, whether it's boldness or a sense of urgency, maybe it's just a recognition of the importance of the message of Christ. But Father, we would, we would speak to others, that we would interject maybe that phrase when someone utters something that we know is untrue, not, Father, to put them on the spot, not to show them that we're smarter or that we're more godly or whatever the case may be, because we want them to know the truth, because we desperately want to start a conversation where we get to talk to them about you and what you've done for us and what you've done for them. Help us, Father, to imitate Paul in that way, that when others diminish us, perhaps, or want to put us down for whatever the reason, Father, help us to respond by, in a sense, kind of shrugging that off and getting back to the message of Christ, because that's what's most important. Because we know we've been accepted by God, and if we know we've been accepted by God, then nothing else really matters. It doesn't matter who else accepts us and who else rejects us. We thank you, Father, for your incredible patience with us. We thank you, Father, for others who have shared with us that glorious message of Christ that brought us to salvation. We thank you, Lord, again for the life-giving Spirit that opened our eyes, enabled us to believe in Christ, saved us from our sins, and now lives in each one of us who believe. We pray, Father, for those who do not yet believe in Christ We ask, Lord, that by your spirit, they would recognize their need for Christ, that they would have a sense of of deep conviction of their sin and wrongdoing, and that they are separated from you. We pray, Lord, as they see their need for Christ, that, Lord, that they would recognize that their only hope is in Christ, that they will never, ever be able to be good enough, never be able to accomplish enough good in their lives to merit even one favor from you, much less the favor of salvation pray, Lord, that they would humble themselves and believe in Christ. Father, we thank you again for the message we have here. We ask, Lord, that you would cause us to to think about it often as we think about our lives, and even if necessary, Father, to reconstruct the way we live our lives, that, Father, we may live our lives in light of the gospel of Christ and be in tune with the word of God. We do thank you. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.